I come to work in order to develop, in order to become a better version of myself. It is part of who I am. In addition to a paycheck, it is part of the development of the self. It is an identity project. I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to 9 to 5-ish with The Skin. We've run into so many questions over the years and had so many moments where we needed advice and we got it from women who'd been there. And that's what we're bringing you with this show. Each week, we're helping you get what you want out of your career by talking to the smartest leaders we know. Because we know your work life is a lot more than nine to five. All right, let's get into it. Today, our guest is Esther Perel. She's a psychotherapist and New York Times bestselling author, and she has become one of the most prominent voices when it comes to modern relationships. Her TED Talks have more than 20 million views, and she has two podcasts, one about romantic relationships called Where Should We Begin? and one about work called How's Work? And she's just launched a new card game for your next date or dinner party and I am very, very into it. Esther, welcome to 9 to 5-ish. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, Danielle. So we usually start things off with a lightning round, but today we're going to do things a little bit differently. We're actually going to kick it off with some modified questions from your new game, which I'm loving already. Okay. <laughs> you want to see if I can eat the food I cooked? <laughs> Answer this question with something joyful. I owe a thank you to. I owe a thank you to my younger son because I sometimes think I take for granted the multiple ways in which he shows up. And it feels so seamless that the seamlessness edits out the gratefulness. And that shouldn't be. So I owe a thank you to one of my mentors from NBC, who I haven't connected with in probably eight years. Mm. And I sent him an email just saying, I was thinking about you. And I know we haven't talked in a while, but I'd love to connect. And we ended up having a great Zoom session. And I'm so thankful to have those types of people in my life when I need them. And I'm also so thankful that I was prompted to reach out after doing a mentorship episode on the show. You know what's so beautiful about this question for me? is that it, of course, feels great when somebody reaches out to you out of the blue, but it also feels even better to do it. You just feel full from acknowledging. Suddenly you kind of feel like you you connected dots that needed to be connected in the stream of your life. And uh, I would have thought of mentors too, many times. I just, I'm in a situation and I'm doing something and it reminds me of where I learned it. And I'm just like, "Ah," it's like an elan of love and appreciation for that person. So I thought that this was a really, a really good question. Answer this with something that gets you worked up. My most tenacious vice is. My most tenacious vice. I'll go if you need a minute. Yeah, go ahead. I have, but go. I think it's my memory because I don't forget. And so it's actually like, I have a hard time letting things go and I'm able to keep active things that like other people just forget. Is it grudges too? Yes. So one should not step on your wrong foot. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Yes. I'll remember. uh, And and it's hard to make up. 
It's hard to make it up for you. It's like there's a breach, yes. there's a slight, there's a tear, and it just cannot be mended. That's it. Right, yeah. Right. right. That, it's interesting that you call it a vice, but it's a beautiful way of understanding the question. I went more concrete, actually. I think mm-hmm. probably my oldest vice is that I bite my nails. <laughs> and I was a big is- nail biter as a child. I've done everything I can to stop. And of course, now I, I sometimes will put polish and hope that, you know, the aesthetics will deter the destructive. Yeah. And especially because we work on Zoom, I see myself sometimes in the middle. <laughs> just doing it. You don't even realize. It's not yeah. even like I'm biting. I, I just have the, the the habit, the nasty habit of, yeah. uh, of bringing the finger to my mouth. <laughs> that is really a vice. I get that. Okay, so answer this with something out of character. Mm. If I wasn't working as a psychotherapist, I would be. Oh, I could be a singer. Are you talented? I sang for many years. I performed. I would be a performer, but I I found a different way to do the performing, to tell the stories. I have always loved to be other people than myself. Mm -hmm. And when you sing, you also can enter a character, you enter the story of the song, the lyrics. So I would do something that invites me to step outside of the bounds of the self that I know into the worlds of others, which is a different version of doing what I do as a therapist and as a podcaster, but I would be the one entering the different role rather than meeting people that take me into different worlds. So I would be... A spin instructor and or a yoga instructor because, and the spin instructor is because I like motivating mm-hmm. people and I like having bursts of energy and having people focus and getting them out of their own heads and to believe, mm-hmm. you know, in something mm-hmm. else. Mm-hmm. And with the yoga part, I like collective group energy that's like focused on something. One of the, the the most resourcing and nurturing things I created during the pandemic was a yoga group of friends over three continents that has been meeting for 20 months, four times a week. And I became one of the teachers. There are other people in the group who are real teachers. Mm-hmm. I was one of those teachers, but I have never taught in my life. And it is such an out of character thing for me, you know, to yeah. hear me say those things, to lead. And I've always loved teaching, but I've never taught yoga. When you teach, you clarify for yourself as well as for others. And it holds you accountable in an incredible way. So here I am for the past 20 months. I have been a yoga teacher as well. That's amazing. <laughs> okay. So let's get into why do workplace relationships and dynamics matter? Like, why is it important to start focusing on the interpersonal relationships at work? And I think more and more people are asking this and wondering this now that a whole bunch of us are working just like this over Zoom, over Mm -hmm, FaceTime. mm -hmm. Look, I think relationships have always been important in the workplace, but paying attention to them, noticing the dynamics, understanding how they influence collaboration, connection, conflict resolution, communication. That was often relegated to what was called soft skills. And soft skills didn't seem to meet the bottom line. And soft skills also were often seen as feminine skills. And feminine skills could often be idealized in principles 
and actually quite disregarded in reality. What is changing is the understanding that relational intelligence in the workplace is part of the bottom line. And why? Because the meaning of work for people who work in that economy, yeah, it's, this, is, this does not cover the entire work reality, is an identity economy. I come to work in order to develop, in order to become a better version of myself. It is part of who I am. I'm in addition to a paycheck. It is part of the development of the self. It is an identity project. And for that, my connections to others, to my managers, my mentors, my colleagues, becomes the active context of my experience at work. When relationships at work don't work well, no matter what is your remuneration, no matter what is your promotion, no matter if you get free food or if you used to get a gym, you basically won't sleep well. And that it will surpass everything. You know, nothing will compensate for poisonous relationships in the workplace. Partly also because for so many of us, it is a central place for us for so many years. It is the place of our social life and our mobility. What's some advice that you have for people that are really struggling in this new way of working, whether it's totally remote, whether it's a hybrid, on starting those relationships, especially, you know, when we see the idea of work and what people want to get out of it is changing so much. We've seen people leave their jobs. And so they're not only trying to keep up with relationships in a different setting, but they're also potentially creating them for the first time. People are seeking at work a sense of belonging, a community, a sense of purpose and meaning, and a sense of identity, all three. That's part of where relationships are so central. It is extremely difficult for newcomers, and I know the scheme has a lot of new people that have just joined, to create all of that in a remote setting when basically nothing on, on the screen is spontaneous. We schedule every meeting. There is no serendipity. There is no happenstance. There is no chance encounter, which are all those detours that lead you to places you could never have anticipated. Everything is extremely planned and predictable. That is one of the great losses of the flattening of relationships and work life that is taking place on the screen. You can do tasks, but that's very different than how you find the meaning of the task, the connections with others around the task, and all of that. The next thing is that people, by working remote, are also working often from their bedrooms. They're spending their whole day in their bedrooms. That means that home is no longer home and work is not really Work, it is a kind of a merging of environments without boundaries. So what is really helping us at this moment is to create routines and rituals and boundaries. And I think the routines and rituals and boundaries can be done towards oneself, with oneself, but also in the workplace. To have conversations that are not about work, but that are about the people who are at work. Who are you working with? 
Who, who is this person that you are sending this document to? Who is this new person who just joined us? And not just to say, Mitch is joining us today. He's going to be taking care of such and such and such and such. And that's the end of Mitch's introduction. And Mitch will not have much of a chance because people have three, four minutes before everybody arrives to do chit-chat, to do small talk, that major glue between people. But many times people just go from one meeting to another And so Mitch is going to remain a rather unknown entity who doesn't really know where he fits. There is no context. There is no linkages. The systemic part of work is kind of fragmented. And then the purpose becomes challenged too. So I think you raise an interesting point, which is it's helpful when you have a shared experience that is spontaneous, that isn't just, you know, what's on the agenda. Correct. And at the same time, I think it's also really important especially for managers to have boundaries, to keep people focused because there's so much going on that we can't control. Would you say that being able to bring your whole self is integral in this way of working together? And if so, how do you begin to lay the trust like for Mitch to be able to feel comfortable doing that? So I'm going to answer it to you in the two parts of your question. Bringing our whole self to work is something we always do. It's just that sometimes we're aware of it and sometimes not. And what is the whole self we bring to work is that we all bring a relationship resume to work. We bring to work the history of how we connect with people, how we communicate, how we trust, how we collaborate, how we ask for help, etc. That is the part of the unofficial resume. I think one of the very nice questions when people come in is instead of asking them, where have you worked before or what are your skills or what is the strength that you bring to this task? We actually ask people to introduce themselves by their unofficial resume. What is the stuff that actually defines a lot about who you are? You know, are the things that you care about that keep you busy, that you enjoy, that you share with other people? That is none of what you have written on your CV. Have that be the introduction. It's a beautiful way to enter into people's worlds, into stories, so that you begin to create not only shared experience, but also which is connected, shared reality. And then other people start to talk about their unofficial resumes. And that too is beautiful because the majority of the time, people who have worked together, sometimes years, still don't know any of this. Yes, you did that. You went there. You traveled for two years. You play this instrument. You sing. You cook. You know. Who is the person? And then once I know those elements of your unofficial resumes, I can start slacking you little things that I found that connect to those parts of you. Then you start to feel like I exist, not just I work. I think that's a really important change. I exist, not just I work. Do you feel like in the people that you've talked to, there's been an added layer of social anxiety in the past 18 months? Yes. I think that the way I understand some of the elements of the social anxiety, the social anxiety was not so much during the confinement. Social anxiety is actually part of a few things, part of the re-entry, but also part of the prolonged uncertainty. You know, this is long-haul COVID. You know, people ask me questions usually, what do you see in the post-COVID? And I'm thinking, post? I know. That drives me crazy when people are like, oh, when we were in the pandemic, I'm like, aren't we still in it? Like all of these things are still very present. 
We are very much in it and, and we are in it also mentally. So in the beginning of the pandemic, when the confinement started, the social anxiety was about the disconnecting, about the reducing of our social circles to very small numbers of people, about creating you know, reliance on a tiny pod, sometimes one person, sometimes four. But you know, it was about the shrinking, the centrifugal force of our social life. And for many people, that was often very challenging. For other people, it was a relief. It was a reprieve. For other people, it was a discovery. How actually, I, and there's something actually soothing about not having to go out there and be out and about all the time. But everybody had reactions. You know, we all went in for a weekend to see if the, the digital worked. That weekend turned into two weeks and those two weeks turned into 20 months. So prolonged uncertainty. Then, as we began to talk about the fall, we had this notion that we're all going to go back to work in some variation of hybrid or another. And the social anxiety is because of social atrophy. For, for all this period, we have dealt specifically with what is predictable, what is stable, what keeps us safe and secure. And we have basically shunned the other part of our existence, which is the spontaneous, the happenstance, the improvised, the unknown, the mystery, the anticipation uh, that comes with curiosity and exploration. Our range of exploration became very, very limited and predictable as much as we could so that we could feel safe. And in going back out, people tell you, I haven't been in a gathering for so long. I haven't been with more than three people in a room. I haven't seen those friends in so long. I haven't seen people in full body. We have been very much disembodied in our social life. And all of that, for some people, is part of the social anxiety. More introverted people are suddenly wondering, ah, I have to, you know, it's like I, I'm going to open the door and a woof of wind is coming on me. Can I brave it? All of that is part of the social anxiety. In some way, when you're confined, you try to control your environment. When you go back out, you have to deal with all the elements and the unknowns of life and the world. So I love when you talk about relationships, and I think there's one relationship that highlights if it's really not working in this remote environment, which is between a colleague and a boss. Mm-hmm. And if you were doing couples therapy of sorts with, with a boss and their direct report, what key questions would you push them on to try to learn about their relationship? So it's so interesting you asked me this question. One, because I, I actually, in the new season of How His Work, did exactly that. I did a few sessions. One is actually called Bringing My Boss to Therapy. And the question I ask there is, what do each of you need from the other in order to succeed at what you're doing? What is it that she can do for you so that you can do what she needs from you? And then in another episode, what is really highlighted is that you cannot understand the relationship outside of the context. It is a situation of two people, a, a supervisor, manager, and, and his direct report. He's black and gay. She's white cis woman. And basically, they cannot deal with their relationship without understanding the issues of gender inequality and race and racism in the workplace. They try very much, she in particular, to make it just about him and her because they get along so well and to kind of individualize their issues. But in fact, 
their individual conflicts are part of larger social ills and social tensions. So it's about opening that up. You hear her say, you know, but you're my friend. You should have stood up for me. You should have negotiated my raise, etc. And you hear him say, but you're not just my friend. That is true too. But I can never look at our friendship and our collaboration outside of the fact that I'm a black man supervising a white woman. And if I go to bat for you, that has meaning that is beyond the one that we alone will ascribe. And to the conversation itself that lays this out and then takes the sting out of it is extremely productive for working on the relationship and on the future of the working together. Hearing you talk about that, just how much trust has to be built between people to have that type of conversation? It's in reverse too, though, Danielle. The trust comes from the conversation. The question always is, do you need to have trust in order to take risks? Or is it the act of taking the risk in this instance, the difficult conversation, the brave conversation, that actually will strengthen the trust. And that is the way this goes. But of course, it is helped by having a mediator, by having someone who works with that relationship. And there are people in the workplace who can do it. I did it this morning with members of my own team. And I just thought, "Mm, some tensions here. It's about switching polarization into complementarity. You need each other. Your differences are good. You you emphasize this, and by you constantly emphasizing one part of the story, one part of the issue, it frees the other person of not having to think about that. But the issue itself needs both of your points of views. You're making this an either-or when, in fact, it's a both-and. And that mentality is very, very freeing and trust building and conflict resolving. What do you think you've been most surprised by as a psychotherapist analyzing this total societal shift we've gone through in this pandemic environment? Maybe two things I would highlight and not in order of importance. One is what does it mean to have all your roles merge in one place? We are very localized people. You know, we get dressed to go to the gym. We get dressed to go and see friends. We take a transportation to go to work. We go to see our friends, to visit with our families. We inhabit a role. We take on different clothes, different accoutrements, different language, different expressions when we go to work versus home, all of that. And suddenly the collapse of all of these temporal boundaries and spatial boundaries and role definitions into one place. This chair where I sit, I am at the same time a mother and a boss and a supervisor and a clinician and a podcaster and a speaker without getting up. You know, that is doing a number on us that I don't think we have yet fully, fully understood. I agree. I mean, one thing that we're grappling with, like so many other employers, is we're trying to do a lot of things to keep people healthy and focused and fulfilled. And there also just seems to be a realization, too, that sometimes you can't get past burnout. How do you advise people when they are at that point where doing all of those things, sitting in that chair and being all of those things just gets to to feel like too much. I think one of the first thing I would say is some responses are 
normal, predictable human responses to an abnormal situation. It's the situation that's abnormal. If you, it's not just the work and the tasks, it's the work and the task in a world where you're beginning to wonder what for? Where is this going? You have a young staff. That young staff is living, many of them, with a, a fair amount of climate despair, a fair amount of, there is no planning. It's enforced presentism. It's all happening in the now. Who, who can make plans for Christmas, you know? Domestic gravity, sitting in small, tiny bedrooms the whole day. And those are social ills. These are not personal problems. You're wondering, where is this all going, is the right question to ask. There's nothing wrong with you. I feel so bad that the world is not giving you the opportunity to have an answer for that. And so sometimes collective resilience, strength, hope is cultivated by allowing people to talk together about their worries and their concerns. Don't try to erase them. Don't try to make them artificially optimistic. The relief will come from the permission of speaking out loud with your colleagues, especially in your newsroom, you're, you know, you're with people who are dealing with the events of the world. The coming together in a circle to tell stories of how your families, for example, have dealt with adversity or war or natural disasters or pandemics or social traumas or racism or structural inequality. I mean, the very big issues. And what were the resources and the strengths that you can identify in your family across generations that helped them overcome famines in Ireland, you name it, poverty, economic strife. That is a conversation that is anti-burnout, you know, because you identify that this has happened throughout history and you mine the strengths and the resources collectively so that you create a collective resilience for the times that we live in. And then people want to come to work because they feel that the people they're working in are living in the same world as them. As a manager, how do you think that I create that forum? Or how do you think that I even start a conversation like that? Exactly as we are doing. You just ask me a question. I share my thoughts with you in the moment. On my Friday team meetings, I decided way back in April last year that every time I was going to write a newsletter or a blog about what's going on, about love, loss, loneliness, collective grief, uncertainty, I was going to have the conversation with my team over the very subjects that we were writing about. I couldn't just think that the audience was going to engage with those questions and not my own team. We cut the meeting in half, the weekly hands-on-deck meeting, and we began to every week ask a question. The same questions we were asking in the game, they have come to be part of the Where Should We Begin game, and the same questions that we were actually writing about or doing the YouTube workshops on. And it was unbelievable. You know, we went through all the different things together, the, the George Floyd, the, the BLM, the economic crisis, the uncertainty, the housing, the, and we would just ask the teams. So as a manager, at your next meeting, you say, this is a time where we can't just pretend it's business as usual. We're not going back to normal. So I want to introduce a moment where we are reflecting together about the world we live in, which explains the world we work in, which is the backdrop to the world we work in. And this is my question for today. And then you don't sit and wait and see 15 faces still. You just start talking and then you call people. 
by their name. They can always say not now, pass, etc. But you you and you lead the conversation, so it doesn't. You know, I don't have anything to say, and then you wait, and it's this uncomfortable stillness. All the questions you started with me today, you can take to your meeting. You know, Daniel, when we did the questions in the beginning, and I think it's a very important thing I would like to distinguish. You were asking me questions. We were asking each other the same question, and then we answered it. What I've been, particularly because you ask in the workplace, and how do you bring those people together, and how can the manager facilitate these things, is to actually not think of it as questions and answers, but as stories. Stories are the bridge that connect us. Where should we begin is actually a game of stories of unlocking the stories inside of you that you rarely tell or that you don't tell in that particular context. And storytelling at work gives us context. And that is a context that at this moment is flattened in our Zoom calls. The context helps you better navigate the moments of trust and conflict and connection that is critical for the success at work. And if you try this with your team in the next few days, tell me about it. You know, I'm very curious to see how it will play out. I love that. And I'm so happy that I'm literally staring at the game in front of me right now. I'm going to try it. It's got to be fascinating being a therapist in this environment, right? Like you are seeing so many things that are going to be studied for generations. What is most interesting for you right now? It's such such a timely question. I have a training platform for coaches and therapists. And every year we have an annual conference for Sessions Live. The topic of this season, we just named it, is called The Great Adaptation. How coaches and therapists can stay grounded when the ground is moving. It's not just a fascinating time for therapists. It is an absolutely overwhelming, draining time for therapists as well. For one, because we are living the parallel reality to the people that we're working with. It's not just happening to them. It's happening to me too. You're spending a session talking to me about, you know, the earthquake in Haiti and the floods in Germany and Belgium and what's going on in Afghanistan. And I, at the end of the session, can sometimes only say, I feel the same way. How do we straddle hope and anxiety at this moment? Is the central question that comes up in in, in my supervision groups all the time. And how do we resource ourselves so that we can continue to give people a sense of hope? How do we take them out of the notion that they have to deal with all of this alone? How do we help people with social connection? Because it is the most important resilience factor. And it's a very challenging time for mental health. And there is not a therapist that has a slot open at this point. I hadn't thought about it from that perspective, but it's got to be so, so challenging. Okay. We're going to get to a listener question. Here's a question from Jamie. As a manager, how can I balance showing compassion for my team with the need to be productive? I think that the compassion question or the compassion statement says, I understand what you're feeling. Tell me more. The production question says, what can I do or what is it that you need in order to do what you need to do despite or given how you're feeling? What do we need to make available for you so that you can do the work as well? And it's a both hand. I understand that 
you're living at home and that you have terrible Wi-Fi. How can we help you? Do we find another place for you that you can go? You basically take the situation and you turn it into the part of the situation that you can solve. Some of it you need to manage and some of it you can actually solve. Who is someone else we should have on the show? Eva Illouz is another extraordinary sociologist. She's a cultural anthropologist or a cultural sociologist who has wonderful insights about the times we live in. Oh, there's so many women that I, I, I find so... Well, send it over. We do a lot of episodes. Thank you so much, Esther. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of 9 to 5-ish with The Skim. A new episode will be in your feed again next Wednesday. In the meantime, check out our news podcast, Skim This. Every Thursday, we cover what you need to know each week in 30 minutes or less.